As you're finding your seats, you can open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, back in the Gospel of Mark. Um, And it's been a a real gift to be able to just fix our gaze on Jesus in an extended way, um, to kind of cut through all of the extraneous things that can compete for our vision for him and to be able to see him. And I I really was just undone by worship today, just able to, I, I think, picture in a real way what Jesus is doing in our midst, and so I'm so thankful uh, just for the opportunity to be together. Um, This is not a a throwaway kind of activity where we're coming into the presence of God, where we're positioning ourselves before his word, and we're seeking to grow together uh, as his family. So Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 8, every story and every great story And every movie has a moment of revelation that reframes our understanding and our experience of that particular story. So the classic nerdy example of that is in Empire Strikes Back. Any Star Wars fans out there? Yeah, obviously. So when the revelation that Darth Vader is Luke's father reframes your whole understanding of the original trilogy And the reason that I'm explaining about the original trilogy is I just have no idea what's going on in any of the other Star Wars movies, to be honest. Um, But in that original original trilogy, the idea that that, um, Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's uh, father reframes the entire Star Wars trilogy. And we're able to kind of see that there is just this collision course between Luke and Darth Vader that will kind of sum up the whole story. Um, And I don't want to leave anybody out. Um, everybody, I mean, every single romantic comedy that exists, um, you know, the, you're kind of the witness of a moment of revelation where there are people that are, they seemingly are best friends that everybody knows that are meant to be together except the actual two people. And then you have that moment of revelation where someone awkwardly figures out that they have feelings for the other person and then you get to go through that and that is your experience of the story. And This morning, we're going to come across a similar moment in the Gospel of Mark, and it's the revelation about who Jesus is and why he came into the world. And this really, this particular section of Scripture is the turning point of the Gospel of Mark. It really is meant to serve as kind of a true north on a compass No matter what's going on in your life, no matter what's going on in the world, this helps us understand what life is all about. This helps us to understand what discipleship is all about. This helps us to understand um, who God has called us to be in the world and how he's called us to live. And as as we were worshiping, my my great prayer is that, that God would, in a fresh way, write the gospel story on our hearts, right? It's not always that you need to hear something new, Charles Spurgeon said, but you need to hear something that's true. We need a greater revelation of why Jesus came into the world and why that actually makes a difference for us every single day. And it begins this morning, we're going to begin with um, a miracle that doesn't seem to quite work out the way that we think it should, and then it ends with a call to radically follow Jesus. So would you turn your attention To Mark chapter 8, we're going to read verses 22 to 38. And they, and that's the disciples and Jesus, came to Bethsaida. And some people brought him a blind man and begged him to touch him. 
And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can man give in return for his soul? For for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, so much we want to enter into the story that you have written and you have accomplished with your life. I pray that it would make its way into the depths of our being, that we would live differently as a result of seeing more of you. I pray that there would be tangible expressions of kingdom love and kingdom sacrifice that spring up from the seed that you are planting in our lives this morning. We ask you to to transform us, not merely just bring illumination to our understanding so that we can have a Bible study, but know that you would change the course and the trajectory of our lives, that you would help us to tell the world a better story because of who you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this would be a section of Scripture that would be among the most important in all the Bible. They're certainly among the most important in the Gospel of Mark. And they are important to who we become as followers of Jesus. And it begins in verse 22 with Jesus and his disciples arriving in Bethsaida. And this is at least a week's walk from where we were um, you know, last week at the beginning of chapter 8. This is also the hometown of Peter, Andrew, and Philip. So this is kind of a, a, a kind of a topography that the disciples are familiar with, but what they are going to encounter, they were unprepared for. 
Jesus in this familiar setting does something extraordinary. Now, what we see immediately is that people bring Jesus a blind man. So if you've been following along with us in the Gospel of Mark for any amount of time, um, you're like, Jesus plus a blind man equals easy peasy lemon squeezy, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, been there, done that, got a t-shirt, right? I mean, the, the, we've, we've, we've seen this scene before. But what happens here is something totally unique in the Gospel of Mark, totally unique in all of the scriptures. This is a miracle that Jesus has to do twice. He lays his hands on him one time and he says, hey, did you receive your sight? And he says, no, I, I see men walking around, but they appear like they are trees. And then he lays his hands on him a second time, and he is able to see clearly. Now, when we come across something like that, you have to ask yourself, like, what's going on here? I mean, did Jesus, is he having a bad day? <laughs> you know, I mean, did he not pray enough? Um, and what we uncover as we follow through the Gospel of Mark is that this miracle is more than a miracle. It is a metaphor for discipleship. This is a picture of the disciples who had walked with Jesus. They had heard his teaching. They had seen his power firsthand over and over again. And they still did not understand who he was. They did not see him clearly. And if I was going to say anything about my life and being a part of churches for most of my life is that there are so many of us that don't see him clearly. This is not just for the early disciples, but this is an invitation for us to lift our eyes off of our current circumstances, off of our current limitations, and see Jesus in a fresh way. And that's exactly what happens for the disciples. It begins with a revelation from Peter. And then we're going to see next week that Jesus is unveiled in his full glory. And um, there's nothing that we need to do more than see Jesus clearly. In a world that's filled with distortion, clarity is a gift, right? And so uh, I was reminded as I was opening this up of the story of Steve Prefontaine. Are you guys familiar with him? He is a distance runner. Yeah, that one in the back. He is probably the most famous distance runner probably in U.S. history. Uh, along with Bill Bowerman, they were personally responsible for the resurgence of exercise in America and running. And um, one of the things that Steve Prefontaine does was one of the things he got out, every time he got out on the track, he said it, it would be a tragedy to waste the gift. And so he gave everything that he had every single day because he wanted to steward this gift that he had for running. And people were always asking him, how did you actually accomplish that? How did you get out there and do that? And he said one day, he said, um, Bill Bowerman, as he was um, Watching Steve Prefontaine, he says, it's as if he woke up every single day with new eyes, right? And honestly, as the people of God, there's nothing that we need more than new eyes. What this passage teaches us is that we need Jesus to see Jesus clearly. We need Jesus to teach us what discipleship is. Clarity is a gift in a world that is filled with distortion. And so every Sunday that we gather, it's about having new eyes. It's about <laughs> having Jesus wash away all of the 
deformity that happens as we are discipled by the world. It's about every time that you gather with a gospel community, you are declaring something to yourself and to the world about what really matters, about what the true story of the world is all about. And it's a story that the that the world desperately needs, and it's a story that's much better than religion. It's a story of the risen Christ and His giving His life for us. And honestly, over just the course of my life, most people, when they get stuck in discipleship, myself included, it's because we don't see Jesus clearly. We don't truly understand what His life and ministry were all about. And so when he begins to ask us to go down a road that we would prefer not to go down, we're out, right? And that's what's happening all over our world right now. So let's look at verses 27 to 33. Jesus helps his disciples kind of understand how they don't see him clearly. Verse 27 says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, said, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That was not a good day for Peter, right? So they're having this conversation. There is just this, I mean, there is a growing um, just popularity of Jesus everywhere he goes. The crowds are growing, but there's not a deep understanding of who he is. So Jesus asks his disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? And then he turns the, the question towards the disciples. And really, you can take that question for yourself. And I, I don't want you to have a Sunday school answer. But who do you say Jesus is? Who does your life and your followership of Jesus say that he is? So Peter confidently and boldly steps up and says, you are the Christ. And Jesus begins to kind of dismantle their worldview in verses 31 through 33. In the words of the Princess Bride and Indingo Montoya, when he says you are the Christ, he says, I don't think you understand what that word actually means. The Son of Man must suffer. Now, we've talked about this a little bit in uh, the Gospel of Mark, but this Son of Man title, I just want to read you a little bit. Pardon me, I'm going to go to the book of Daniel. This is, this is what Jesus means when he's talking about the Son of Man. And it begins with a picture of God the Father that is described as the Ancient of Days, and Jesus is the Son of Man. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was like fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. And a stream of fire issued and came out before him, and thousands 
A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, and the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And then it goes on to describe the Son of Man, and this is what Jesus says about himself. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, the cloud of heaven, and there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that should not be destroyed. So what's going on here is the one with all glory and all power and all dominion is willingly laying it down for his enemies to display his love. This is the heart of God for his people. Now, in case we are tempted to think that Jesus was speaking in some kind of figurative language that the the disciples could not understand, verse 32 says he explained this to them plainly. It's just not what they wanted to hear. So Peter begins to rebuke Jesus And Jesus began to dismantle their idea of who the Messiah would be and who Jesus actually was. For Peter and the disciples, for them, the Christ or the Messiah was going to be a great political leader that put Israel and ultimately themselves at the center of the story. That as God's kingdom came, they were going to take their place at the center. And what this teaches us is, that it is our natural tendency to twist Jesus' role to fit our own personal agenda, right? To shrink Jesus down to the size of our lives, right? To make Jesus the meter of our personal needs, to make him our personal savior. He becomes our personal counselor, our personal healer. He becomes the spokesperson for our favorite political issues. Now listen, Jesus does care for each of you personally, individually, and specific. But if if we shrink God down and Jesus down to the size of our lives, we mute his power in our lives and in the world. Jesus being king or the son of man means that he has an agenda. It means that he has ownership. So when we hear radical things that are going to come up, like you're going to deny yourself and follow him, the only way that that makes sense is when you see that he's the king of everything, when he's the king of the entire universe. Not only is he the king of my heart, but he's the king of the world, right? So that's the only right and appropriate response when we understand. Now, when... When the original disciples were saying this, when they were calling Jesus Lord and Christ and Messiah, I mean, this was a politically subversive kind of statement that they were making. Things that brought them into direct opposition with the kingdoms and the powers of the world. And they were willing to lay down their life because they had a vision of something bigger. Now, I'm thankful... um, I have a a daughter who is now in college, and I love interacting with her and her friends because there's something about when you are that age and you are following Jesus that it is 
full of horizons and possibilities and questions. What am I going to do with my life? Like, how am I going to serve Jesus? What would it look like? Hey, wherever he wants me to go, whatever he wants me to do, that's exactly what I'm going to do. But listen, as you follow Jesus for a while, that kind of pioneer spirit that I will do anything and go anywhere and give anything for the sake of the gospel grows smaller and smaller. And that's just because, just like the man that couldn't see clearly, we don't see clearly. But the gift of sight that Jesus wants to give us today is that the story of the gospel is worth so much more than just a little bit of um, devotion. Brian Zond, who's an author I've come to appreciate recently, says, we've demoted Jesus from Lord and King to the Secretary of Afterlife Affairs, right? So instead of being about how we live here and now, it's all about where you spend eternity. That's an important question. But that's not primarily why Jesus came into the world. He came to bring his kingdom to bear through ordinary people like you and I. So Jesus rebukes Peter and says, I'm not going to have any agenda, but um, God's... And what becomes clear is that the way of the kingdom is the way of the cross. The way that the kingdom goes forward is through self-emptying and self-sacrificing and suffering love. Tim Keller says this in his book, King's Cross. He says, but here is Jesus saying, yes, I'm the Messiah, the King, and I came not to live but to die. I'm not here to take power but to lose it. I'm not here to rule but to serve And that's how I'm going to defeat evil and put everything right. Jesus just didn't say that the Son of Man would suffer. He said that the Son of Man must suffer. This word is so crucial that it's employed twice. The Son of Man must suffer many things and he must be killed. The word must modifies and controls the whole sentence. This means that everything in this list is a necessity. Jesus must suffer, must be rejected, must be killed, must be resurrected. This is one of the most significant words in the story of the world, and it's a scary word. What Jesus said was not just that I've come to die, but I have to die, and it's absolutely necessary that I die, and that that the world can be renewed, nor the world can't be renewed, nor nor can your life unless I die. This is the gospel story that God is inviting us to experience in a fresh way today. This isn't just the story by which we are converted, but this is the story that we are meant to live out of. In these verses is the heart of God himself. This is the heart of redeeming love. This word must. Jesus coming into the world to save sinners. This was not an accident. Jesus didn't stumble into getting crucified. This wasn't a divine obligation, but this was because God so loved the world and God so loved you that he laid down his life on the cross. So these verses teach us that because Jesus lived in the shadow of the cross, we must live our lives in the shadow of the cross. This is the turning point of the book. So now the call to discipleship, verses 34 to 38. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So our lives are meant to tell this gospel story. The reason that 20 years later, after September 11th, that people are still telling the same stories about Todd Beamer, who helped Flight 93 crash into Pennsylvania, or New York firefighters who rush into a building. It's because it is so countercultural for people to live for something different than themselves, for other people to lay down their own rights, to people to lay down their own life. Our story is meant to tell a similar story. Donald English says this. He says, people carrying crosses were people going to execution. Cross-bearing as a follower of Jesus means nothing less than giving one's whole life over to following him. And here comes another surprise. The way of total freedom, if you clutch your life wholly to yourself, protecting it against all others, asserting your rights, needs, and privileges, you lose it because it isn't life any longer. If, however, you acknowledge that your life is not yours by right, that all is privileged, and it's to be lived in the love that the gospel story reveals, self-giving love, then you possess it wholly. There's nothing now to lose and everything to gain. So there is nothing more countercultural than self-denial, right? And so this isn't a, a call from Jesus to give up your personality or your gifts, or your uniqueness, but it is a call to die to our own attempts at self-definition, at self-identity, our own pursuits of self-fulfillment apart from his kingdom, and trying to find ourselves on our own. But when we do that, when we lay those things aside, we actually begin to experience the power of the story of Jesus and his death and his resurrection. And honestly, there's nothing that these neighborhoods around us need more than tangible encounters with the kingdom of God through self-sacrificing love. There's nothing that, I mean, if you are having trouble in your family right now, and maybe your kids are not exactly where you want them to be, there's nothing that they need more than tangible expressions of self-sacrificing love. There's nothing more that the campus needs or your workplace. But it's, it's this laying down our life to tell the story of Jesus so that he receives the glory. Now, the truth is, this call to self-denial, it says that you can't truly find your life unless you lay it down. So the truth here is that you can't become who God's created you to be without following Jesus on the road of suffering love, right? You can't become who God's created you to be without 
following him on the road of suffering love. Because that's really what our souls are. They're the imprints and the divine nature that God has stamped on us. And the way to find life or to become who God's created you to be is to follow him in this world of self-emptying love. Now, I'm going to close by just talking about five lies of identity or five lies that we tend to believe in how the gospel tells us a different story. Then we're going to celebrate communion together. These come from Henry Nouwen. These are five lies of identity. Number one, I am what I have. Number two, I am what I do. Number three, I am what other people say or think of me. Number four, I am nothing more than my worst moment. And number five, I am nothing less than my best moment. So let's just go through each of these briefly and tell each other out loud how the gospel tells us a better story. The first lie of identity or where we are tempted to find life is I am what I have. This is the gospel of accumulation or the gospel of consumption. This is the American gospel. This is the lie of consumerism, that life exists in the abundance of possessions. And listen, you don't have to go out and buy all kinds of things to be possessed by your possessions. It could also be a saving or a hoarding mentality. And as a culture, we buy this hook, line, and sinker. But what the gospel story tells us, a better story, is twofold. One, that our life is not measured by what we possess, but life is measured by who possesses us, right? That we belong to him, that we are his treasured possession, that he has purchased us with his own blood and that we belong to him. And our inheritance is not in what we have now. Listen, so if God himself is our inheritance or our treasure, like there's nothing more that we really could desire or even need because we already possess everything by faith, right? So we have this inheritance with God. We are his treasured possession and we're not defined by what we possess, but by the one who possesses us. The second lie of identity and where we're tempted to find life is I am what I do. And this is, um, I was reading a book this week and it, it kind of just posed this question. Why is it that you think as Americans, one of the first questions we ask little kids is what do you want to do when you grow up? Because we are a group of people that are defined by what we do, right? Our careers, right? Because we believe that status is attached to what you can actually achieve, right? So the lie that, this is the lie that I most easily believe that my value is built on being a pastor and my worth and my value is measured by how successful our church is. But most of the time, the the metrics that we're trying to achieve are not ones that God has set up for us, but ones um, that we want to possess because we think there's something fundamentally flawed inside of us. So many of us exhaust ourselves trying to prove ourselves 
um, to, to show God and other people that we are worthy or that we are valuable or that we are lovable. The good news of the gospel story is that we were loved from the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 says, we were loved by God. Before the world was ever spoken into creation, God spoke his love and his heart over you. So this frees us when that story becomes the primary story that we're living out of, not to be controlled by our careers, right? There's nothing more damaging to the gospel witness than being sold out to the story of career and workaholism, right? So God wants to free us from that story by looking at a better story that we are loved apart from what we do. The third lie of identity or where we can find life is in the opinions of others, right? This is the law of social media, the law that exists in the workplace, the, the opinions of those that you want to please that always seems to be just outside of your reach. Listen, the good news of the gospel is that only God has the power to name us, right? He's the only one that has the ability to give us identity and value. There's not a number of clicks. There's not something that someone can say that's better than what's already been said about you through Jesus. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. And the only way to be free and to fight against living for and finding life in the opinions of others is to find out and live in the approval of Jesus. Now, I know this truth is familiar to many of us, but we have to remind ourselves over and over because the story of the world is always trying to tell us that the opinions of other people matter. And if I was going to say anything for us in this next season um, as a church, and, and I think this is from the Lord, it's that... Um, being a Christian is going to cost you more and more as you go through life. I, I don't think life will ever return back to a place where Christianity is trumpeted as a cultural value. I don't think that um, as we continue to try to live out this gospel story in faithful ways, it's going to, you know, whether that's politically or socially, it's going to put us at odds with all kinds of people because the kingdom of God will not bow to human and man-made institutions. So we need to be um, deeply rooted in the affirmation that God has for us as his people. And then the final two places where we try to find identity is in our life or our performance, that I'm nothing more than my worst moment and I'm nothing more than my best moment. For the Christian, the headline must always be, and forever, Jesus' performance for us, not our performance for him. And the more that we get this, honestly, we'll be able to perform better. But listen, so many in this room <laughs> and I was thinking about this, the, the best moment. Well, the story that came to mind like a few years ago, my wife and I went to see this concert and it was like, it was an 80s throwback concert. 
and it had Tiffany there. You guys know Tiffany from 1987? She says, I think we're alone now. So that's, you can YouTube that later. That was really close. But I thought about, I, I thought about this because Tiffany, right, she, I mean, she's a little bit older than I am, but her whole life has been defined by her best moment, right? And she has one song. She was a one-hit wonder, and she has to sing that same song to crowds of people over and over again, right? She's a slave to her best moment, right? And I'm sure, right, because people didn't come to see, you know, 45-year-old Tiffany. They came to see 17-year-old Tiffany when she did that in 1987, right? And so we can, so if you, if you feel like your best moments are behind you, the gospel story says, listen, no, no. The, the best days always for the people of God are in the future because we are on a collision course with glory. We don't have to be defined by our best moment. And listen, the cross takes away all of the sin, all of the shame of your worst moments. And not being defined by what we do, we get to be defined by Jesus' performance for us. And that's what we're going to celebrate in the gospel. That's what we're going to celebrate in communion. That it is finished for us. So as we lay down our life and our abilities to define what life looks like, and we take that different than the culture takes it, it allows our lives to tell a better story. Now listen, I'm not saying any of this is easy or natural. That's why it's called discipleship, and that's why we need the power of the risen Christ to live out that story, and that's exactly what we're going to celebrate. So I'm going to invite the band up. Uh, Trenton is going to come and lead us in communion, and we're going to celebrate this gospel story. And I want you to think just, just where you need to hear his voice for your own story, where you may be tempted to find life in other things.